who remembers uh, Blockbuster Video? Just raise your hands. Okay, lots of us older people. <laughs> what about what about the uh, the little mom and pop stores? Do you remember when those first came out? When when you could actually uh, get VHS tapes of movies and uh, those little video rental stores. There's a lot of good memories for me there. Um, right? Uh, be kind, rewind. Right? Everybody remember that? <laughs> Uh, when I was a kid, our, actually our next door neighbor worked for Disney, and so he would bring home Disney movies on a reel-to-reel and project it in his living room. And like for us as kids, that was just so incredible, so magical. And now we have Disney Plus, and we just, it's all just right there. Our, our kids don't understand that. Um, if you could go back in time, imagine you could go back in time and tell your younger self, look, there's going to be a day when you can have any movie you want, and you can watch it as many times as you want. It'll be uh, at, at your fingertips, right? You would just, you would blow your own mind, right? Well, at least if you're, if you're older. That, that was just so out of the realm of possibility for us. Um, so who likes to, to re-watch movies? You have a movie that you like to watch over and over and over again. Yeah, or, or maybe a TV series, um, how about watching movies with your kids, movies that you loved and then you want to show them to your kids and then you don't realize until you're halfway through how much profanity is in it, right? You for, you, or nudity, you forgot that, that uh, part about it. Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I was trying to think, what is the movie that I've probably seen the most? And it's probably Jaws. Not because Jaws is necessarily my favorite movie, but I just think it was on TV for a, a long time, and I, I would just be clicking through, and I just, I couldn't turn away from it. I just, I would always watch it at some point all the way through. Um, so I'm just wondering, who thinks maybe they've watched a certain movie the most times out of anyone here? Anybody watched a movie more than 10 times? 20 times, 30 times, yeah, what, what, movie, what movie have you watched and how many times probably? There you go, awesome. And so uh, I, was watching, uh, I was watching recently Inception with Logan, my son, and uh, that's a movie that has a lot of intricacies to it. But but I, I think it was maybe the third or fourth time I'd seen it, and, and there was things right from the start that I was like, oh yeah, that's going to be this, and this is going to happen. And so I was starting to make those connections, because I've seen the movie uh, a couple times. And I think in a similar, and maybe, and hopefully pro- more profound way, that there are times when we go to Scripture, when we go to God's Word, and God reveals more and more from the Scriptures uh, as we go to them again and again. Uh, Because I've changed, because God is doing changes in me, God wants to see me change, Uh, Scripture never diminishes in its impact. And so we should never say of Scripture, like maybe a movie, eh, I've already seen that, right? So today I want want us to see from our passage in 2 Timothy uh, that relationship with Christ, a meaningful life, and kingdom ministry need to be saturated in the inspired Word of God. And so, let's go to the text, 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. And it says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, 
which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continuing in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What a great passage. And so my outline today for the passage is that that God's word is inspired, that God's word is instructive for a good life, God's word is instrumental in making disciples, and God's word reveals the incarnate and eternal Christ. Again, I want us to walk away today with the understanding that relationship with Christ, a meaningful life in kingdom ministry needs to be saturated in the inspired word of God. And so as we continue to, to look at Paul's uh, and his instruction, his encouragement to Timothy as a pastor, and, and to us, us as believers, we're going to um, start towards the end of the text, and then we're going to move our way backwards. Um, and so the first point is, is, what does it mean that God's Word is inspired? Starting in verse 16, we see the phrase, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture in this context for, for Timothy would have been at least the Old Testament, and I would argue Paul's epistles and Luke Acts. We know that Timothy was taught the Old Testament scriptures from childhood by his mother uh, Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And we know that, that from, from verse 10 that Timothy um, had followed the teachings of Paul in the local cities, uh, but then also at some point Paul teaches him more directly, right? He's teaching him through this letter, in fact. Uh, so Paul instructs that, that his letters be read to be read aloud to the churches, to be passed around. And he claimed that his message uh, in 1 Thessalonians is, is the word of God. That's what Paul claims of his own teaching. Uh, he says his words were taught by the Spirit. He says they are not human wisdom. That's in 1 Corinthians. Peter also calls out and says all of Paul's letters uh, are, are Scripture equating them with the Old Testament. Uh, and then remember back in 1 Timothy uh, 5.18, Paul, he quotes Jesus' words from Luke's gospel, and he calls that scripture as well. And so I'm not going, going to go into uh, all the evidence for the canon of scripture, but we'll say that, that we should have extreme confidence that what we have in our Bibles today is, is referred to here as scripture, okay? So whether or not Timothy had access to these other scriptures at the time of Paul's letter, Jesus promised, he promised that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things, speaking about the the apostles, teach them all things, bring to remembrance all that Jesus had said to them, and guide them into all truth. And so we often say that scripture is inspired, right, or given by the inspiration of God, which simply means that the words of scripture are spoken by God. Now, unfortunately, the word inspiration has become 
pretty common in its everyday use. It seems like, like every songwriter, every poet, right, they were inspired to write what they, what they wrote. They don't mean that God actually was speaking through them. Uh, it's just the way we use that word now. Even athletes, right, are, are, are said to have, oh man, that was an inspired performance. Okay? We mean something different here. When we say that the scripture is given by the inspiration of God, the Greek word used uh, is uh, theonostis. And so literally, God breathed. And this doesn't mean that scripture itself or the human authors uh, were breathed into by God, but that scripture was breathed out by God. So it's not as if scripture was, was already in existence and then God breathed uh, into it but that the breath or the Spirit of God brought Scripture into its very existence. We call this inspiration. And so all Scripture originated in the mind of God, was communicated by God in this way, and so is rightly called the words of God. When God spoke through a prophet, um, they would declare, thus says the Lord. And so when a prophet spoke in God's name, every word he spoke had to be true, had to come true if it was prophecy, or else he would be a false prophet. And so all the words of Scripture are God's words. Now, Paul, tells, um, it, Paul has told us where a Scripture originates from, but then he moves on to what is Scripture's purpose? What is it intended for? And so he instructs Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, and profitable. And so my second point is that, that God's Word is instructive for a good life. And here I mean, I mean a truly good life, um, God-glorifying, rich with meaning, true, able to be comprehended. I don't mean a life of just simply ease or comfort. And so verse 16 continues that Scripture is profitable or, or advantageous for teaching. And we usually think of profitable in connection with money, right? or an investment that grows in value. Therefore, Scripture works well in instructing those who follow it. Scripture, scripture teaches by reproof, by correction, by training in righteousness. It says, it says, stop, you're going in the wrong direction. Turn around, make a course correction, right? So how do we change and help others to change direction through God's Word? Well, we're to be counseled and help others counsel from Scripture. And this is the emphasis of biblical counseling. So yes, we know that, that we have to know, we have to understand what Scripture is saying, but the Bible isn't an encyclopedia or simply a history book. Yes, Scripture has the truths about the world that we live in, and it has history, but that's not all. There's so much more. Paul says it's for reproof, correction, training. I think that's when most of us read verse 16, right, we immediately go to doctrine. And it's true that, that, that Paul speaks of doctrine. He speaks of these false teachers who are leaving doctrine, who are compromising doctrine. But Paul's making a case here from his character as well. He's offering the evidence of his life as a reason for believing and for Timothy to remain in God's word. And so doctrine tells us who God is, but it also reveals who we are. We are God's image bearers who have idol factories in our hearts. And so God's law is a reflection of who He is, His attributes. And so God hates lying, Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. It's an abomination to Him. 
Proverbs 12, 22. But scripture, uh, scripture tells us that because God is truth, we should not lie. But it also tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. And so we lie. We lie for all kinds of different reasons. We lie to take advantage of others. We want the upper hand. We want uh, success, fame, status, power, but, but we don't always want to do the hard work to get there. And so lying can be the shortcut. We lie to avoid, avoid punishment. When we blow it, we try to save our own skin by lying. Even when the evidence is stacked against us, we, we think, deny, 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 right? We lie to manipulate others um, to do something or not do something that we want them to. Sometimes we lie to avoid conflict, right? Because of fear of man, we don't speak up or we lie to avoid those uncomfortable conversations. We lie to preserve our pride. We want to look good. We want to preserve our ego. We want to impress others with our lives and our accomplishments and our credentials. So yes, we shouldn't steal or murder, but what are the heart issues when we have anxiety? When our sin breaks relationship with God or with others, when we're quick to be angry, when we're slow to forgive or confess sin, and Scripture covers all of this. We can go to God's Word and be counseled and help counsel others as well. That's what we're called to do. It's good to have a virtuous, restorative, godly counsel and be able to minister to others through God's Word. So ask yourself, uh, why are we so quick to see a psychologist or psychiatrist but afraid to get good biblical counseling? It may be that we, we actually will need the help of that psychiatrist or that psychologist. There's nothing wrong with going to, um, going to someone to get help. But, but why go to them first or why only go to them? Again, I want us to ask the question, do we, do we trust that God's Word can handle our problems? Do we trust the wisdom of other believers? Are we only comfortable talking with a stranger? Why? I think in many cases, we don't, we don't want to confess our sins, right, to people in our church, to brothers and sisters. What about our struggles and our victories? Why are we hesitant to, to share those things with one another? We're quick to challenge doctrine, but not application. <coughs> what problems does it create when we're quick to say that we are sinners? We're sinners, but it never in particular sins that we're struggling with to anyone. What does it convey to each other in the body of Christ? That everyone else has it all together, except me, except my family? We begin to think that everyone else has this picture-perfect life, and here I am struggling. Yeah, we're all sinners, but nobody seems to be struggling with any particular sin. Do you think that opens up dialogue that can lead to healing, or do you think that shuts it down? And so, real relationships, body of Christ relationships should be about God and His Word and how that is changing us, conforming us to Christ, how our sin is inhibiting us with relationship with God and others, how we need encouragement to trust in God, to trust in His Word and Christ's gospel, that we need truth spoken to us by brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to share in both our sorrows and our victories. 
And so turning around, changing direction requires repentance. Repentance is, is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And so Paul declares in Acts uh, 26, 20, he says that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so the Bible, Scripture tells us that the, the Christian life, the good life, is one that agrees with God. It's one that agrees, is in harmony with His Word, so that we can be trained to live lives of righteousness. And so, uh, do you want to? <laughs> so, there's a difference between teaching and training. Paul says we are to be training. With training, there's always a test at the end, and that test is designed to demonstrate either retention or competency. And so, you can teach something, someone, and they go on their way. But if you train someone, there, there's an expectation that it will be put into action what they have learned. And so teachers teach, but we usually think like the military trains, right? We don't always use uh, maybe trigonometry in our everyday life, but, but soldiers train with the expectation that they, they need to be combat ready at any moment if a conflict breaks out. And so as Christians, we are to be trained in righteousness by the righteous one through his word, so that we would be actively demonstrating that, we're, that we are men and women of God, that we are complete, not perfect, but also not deficient, and that we are equipped because of our training to do good for our great God. Does this sound like a good life? A life of meaning and purpose? It's only through immersing yourself in Scripture. And so let's jump up to the top of the passage, uh, verse 10. Paul has been warning against the false teaching, the moral decline, uh, the empty religion that he sees emerging in some of these early church leaders. And he says regarding Timothy, you, however, and he encourages them that, in the, that, in, that he is a stark contrast to those men, that Timothy is called to be different, he's called to be set apart, even if he's the only one and has to stand alone. In the same way, every Christian must be set apart from the world. Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we're to be transformed, not, not by our culture, not by the world, but by testing everything against the word of God. And so... Unfortunately, it's, it's not just the world. Pressure to conform is coming from both outside and inside the church. We have to stand firm on the Word of God. We're not to be about progress, progress, about moving away from the truth. And so for Paul, standing firm in the truth, it's resulted in persecution. He mentions uh, three Galatian cities. He, he mentions Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And because Timothy grew up in Lystra, he would have surely heard, at least, of the attacks on Paul, um, maybe even been a witness to, to the many times Paul was stoned or, or drug out of the city, left for dead. Some speculate that Paul's courage under persecution could have played a part in Timothy's conversion. I have no doubt that Stephen's bravery while dying as a martyr had an impact on Paul's journey to conversion. Paul is saying to Timothy, follow me in radical godliness, and when you do, you'll suffer. 
Paul then moves from his, his personal experience to, to this general state of, statement about persecution. He says in verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And theologian John Stott says in his commentary on 2 Timothy, he says, the godly arouse the antagonism of the worldly. It has always been so. It was so for Christ, and he said it would be so for us. Jesus says in John 15, verses 18 through 20, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so notice that Christ assumes that his followers would both be in the world and not of the world. And so this expectation is that, that we would be living among uh, those that are apathetic or agnostic to, to even uh, angry or in rebellion to God. And that we would live godly lives in Christ. And so when both of these conditions are met, uh, Jesus is certain that there's, there's going to be persecution. And so the math is, is in the world plus not of the world equals persecution. And it makes sense. If a Christian, if as a Christian you isolate yourself from non-believers or, or if no one knows that you're a Christian or you only engage with Christians, there's no potential for collision from potential persecutors. As well, if you're, if you're in the world but you're no different from it, then the world seeds nothing to persecute. Ask yourself, are, are you persecuted for Christ? And if not, why not? And I'd add, add not, not, not about your political views, right? I think everyone on both sides are are kind of persecuted for that right now, but, but, but for being a Christ follower. And that might not sound like the good life, but Scripture prepares us for this reality. It makes sense of it for us as Christ followers. Romans 8, verses 16 to 18 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So from God's word, we're not left wondering why with regard to suffering, with regard to persecution. But instead, we understand that persecution is evidence of the very unity of Christ in this life and in the next. In verse 13, Paul continues to contrast this good life with the evil activities of the false teachers, and they avoid persecution by changing their doctrine and, and changing their behavior to be indistinguishable from the world. And Paul's warning is, don't let your doctrine shift because it makes you uncomfortable. Even today, they say things like, Lives are only precious if they're wanted. Love is love. We know from science that there's no miracles. God's wrath isn't real. Sex isn't sacred. Children are a burden. God's word is fallible. God wants you to have a comfortable life. 
Men and women are indistinguishable. Sin is no big deal. Marriage is for convenience. And that truth is relative. Paul calls them imposters, literally wailers or howlers, comparing them to, to sorcerers and chanters who, who would wail and howl their, their incantations. And so um, he says they're trying to get attention, right? They make a lot of noise only to deceive others and ultimately deceive themselves. Because when they deceive, whether they know it or not, they're employed by the deceiver whose lies... Um, who lies and manipulates even the false teachers. Paul doesn't think that these men are, are, just are, are sincere but just mistaken. He thinks that they're charlatans. And so without the word of God and its counsel and the counsel and discipleship of others, there's, there's no reproof, there's no correction. And so they move away from the truth of God's word. And Paul says in verse 13 that they will go on from bad to worse deteriorating intellectually and morally. And so thank God we can have this abundant life in Christ that corresponds to reality and is grounded in the truth. It is good. So how do we combat this? Paul make, makes the case that God's word is instrumental in making disciples. This would be my, my third point. Um, we learned last week and in the preceding verses that false teachers are lovers of self and money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They creep into households, are always uh, learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth, so they oppose the truth, are corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. And so, in contrast to the lives of these men, Paul displays the fruit of his life. And he says to, to Timothy, he says, you have followed me faithfully. And again, in verse 14, he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And so, Timothy is not this... Um, this impartial student, right? He's not, he's not learning on Zoom uh, with the video off and the microphone muted, right? He's not a detached observer, but he's devoted. He's a devoted disciple of Paul's. And so Timothy, he firmly believed, not just due to the words and the ideas, but Paul's life was a consistent demonstration of the gospel. Paul says this again in Philippians 3. Uh, verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so why didn't Paul just say, <laughs> follow Christ, imitate Christ? I was talking to a young man recently uh, about Paul's claims, and he said, um, isn't that a bit, uh, I don't know, uh, heretical. <laughs> Paul was living as an example of a follower of Christ. And so Paul, unlike Jesus, yeah, unlike Jesus, he could demonstrate confession of his sin. He could ask for forgiveness. He could demonstrate repentance, his need for Christ, his need for God's grace and mercy. He wasn't perfect, but he was a man of God, complete, equipped for every good work. And he lived a life of obedience to Christ. 
And so because of the good fruit in Paul's life, he had the confidence to say, follow me. Okay, but, but isn't Paul like boasting? Isn't he bragging here? Maybe a little conceited, right? Um, he was a really good teacher, but, but really, he, look, I mean, he, he talks about, he, he compares his love, his faith. No, Paul's giving objective evidence of the authenticity and legitimacy of his teaching, which are the life he has lived and the sufferings he's endured. He demonstrates this, this sincerity, um, or these fruits of Paul's life, they demonstrate the sincerity with which Paul believes. He both practices what he preaches and he's willing to suffer for it. Now, surely uh, someone could be sincere and be sincerely wrong, but Paul is saying, he's saying the proof is in the pudding. And this is, this is an idiom that, that means the success of the recipe or the ingredients are in, in the result of how it tastes. He's saying that the results of living out the gospel, of living for Christ, is a good and noble life that brings with it persecution. Paul is saying that because he follows Christ, he's a better man even in the face of opposition. And this is in direct opposition to the false teachers who lived a life of self-indulgence. They were, uh, were they willing to, to suffer for their views? No. No way. Paul's warning is don't run from godliness to avoid persecution. And so Paul lived a consistent life of righteousness, of faith, of love, and was steadfast even through his many trials and brutal persecutions. Timothy would have known Paul and, and, and evaluated his own behavior in light of Paul's. In the same way, do we look at our conduct? What is our demeanor? What is our behavior, your character? Not just on Sunday mornings or when things are going your way, but, but how would those that know you describe your way of life? What is your aim in life? What motivates you? What gets you out of the bed in the morning? What light makes life meaningful for you? What are your spiritual ambitions? Have you, ever been, have you ever even thought about that? What is your faith? Where's your trust? Where do you get your confidence from? And, and Paul was probably speaking more to his fidelity here. So are you trustworthy? Are you dependable? And to whom? How is your patience? How tolerant are you of those, those aggravating people that God has divinely placed in your life? How would others describe uh, your love? Do you just uh, justify yourself in, in avoiding those type of people? Is that how you, you are patient and loving, by just avoiding them? How do you love God and your neighbor? How, how would those... Those people, not your friends, not those who are closest to you, describe your love for others. Finally, how is your steadfastness? How is your endurance in trying times and under frustrating, unfair circumstances? None of us experience those, right? And so Timothy, he imitated Paul. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, Starting about halfway through, through verse 5, um, Paul is talking to the, the church in Thessalonica, and he says, 
You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. He's talking about Timothy here. Timothy is one of those men, the us that they should become imitators of. And so this is the principle of discipleship, multiplication, that you would pour into people and that they would pour into people who would pour into people who would pour into people. And so ask yourself, why are we quick to tell, tell everyone online that they're wrong, but hesitate to disciple a few young believers faithfully to maturity in Christ? In the same way uh, that Paul could point to his life as an example that others should follow, here's my challenge to you. Can you say the same? Let's try this. Who here feels like they have a good and consistent daily time in God's Word, uh, communing with Jesus in prayer. Raise your hands. Don't be shy. Raise your hands. Raise them really high. You'll see why in a minute. Keep them up. Praise God. <laughs> Some of you are like this. Yes. <laughs> Raise them up high. Come on. Um, if you are struggling in this area, Seek out these people, seek out these men, seek out these women, right? Meet with them, buy them coffee. If you're watching online, contact the church this week. Say, say I'm, I'm a Paul and I'm looking for a Timothy, or I'm a Timothy in need of a Paul. Let's get you connected, right? All right, back to 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. It says, knowing from whom you learned it. And so, it means that knowing Paul's good character is good reason for Timothy to dwell in God's Word. But Paul is also referring to, to Timothy's mother and his grandmother. Timothy knows and admires their character, and so he is encouraged to stay steadfast and not abandon the truth. And so parents, disciple your kids. Read the Bible with them. Encourage spiritual conversations with them. Ask them questions. Be available when they have questions, when they need to talk which is usually when you're <laughs> at your most exhausted or when, you have, when you're oppressed for time. Uh, but try and do it. Point them to the Bible. Don't just point at the book. Point them to the, the words inside of the Bible, the truths inside of the Bible. Um, point them to Christ. Model Christ in your homes. Demonstrate that when you sin, you need to confess. As an adult, as a parent, that you need to repent that you need God's forgiveness, that you are reliant on His grace and His mercy. Involve other godly men and women in the lives of your kids so, so if they feel like they can't talk to you for whatever reason at a time, that they have good resources. Connect with parents that have godly kids. Spend time with them. Ask questions. I want to give away a book today. Um, before you raise your hand... <laughs> I would love for the men in the family to, to raise their hand, okay? Um, this is Instructing a Child's Heart by, by Paul Tripp, but there's other good resources. Um, who wants this book? All right. Uh, come see me after, after service. Um, get together with a more mature couple or, or a couple that has more experience uh, parenting. Ask them to go through this with you. 
right? If you're a parent that has kids that are, that are grown or, or maybe they're just a little bit further along, get, grab a good resource and go find one of the young families in our church and spend time with them. Paul disciples Timothy in his conduct and his aim, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfast, his suffering. He reminds Timothy of his sufferings for Christ and that Christ has rescued him over and over. We talked about having a proper theology of suffering. How can we help others to trust God in their suffering? Through discipleship. We might not think that's, that's what we think of as discipleship, but but when you were suffering, who was there to comfort you? Were you all alone? Did you have great godly brothers and sisters pouring into you, encouraging you, giving you God's word? How could you help counsel someone in a similar struggle? We don't like it when we're in the midst of suffering. But on the other end of it, if we're not using it for God's glory... Use this. How have you made yourself available? Are you helping connect others to those that need help? You know someone who's suffering, and you know someone else who's going through the same struggle. Go connect those people. My final point is, remember that Scripture is created from the breath or the Spirit of God into existence. And so it only makes sense, because uh, because the Holy Spirit points us to Christ, that God's Word reveals Christ. And so the Word of God, the Logos in the Greek, is, is referred to at the beginning of John's Gospel. The Jews that Paul was speaking to would have understood the Logos as, as the Word of God. The Word of God in action. So that, so that in Genesis 1, when God speaks the universe into existence... This is God's Word creating, making everything from nothing, and then acting upon that creation. And so, um, also, Jews afraid of blaspheming God's Word, when they would uh, read uh, Scripture, when they would read the Old Testament uh, in, the, in, the, in the Greek translation of it, the Septuagint, they were always afraid of, of blaspheming God's Word, so they wouldn't use God's name but they would insert Logos, the Word of God. And so John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he he purposely connects his gospel with with Genesis 1 by by opening his gospel within the beginning was the Word. And while not identical to the Jews, in the mind of of John's Greek audience, they would have understood the Logos uh, to be many things, but, but would include the shaping, the ordering, the directing uh, principle in the universe, as well as its captain and its pilot. And we know that according to John's, jo- John's gospel, the Logos is with God from the beginning. Because God has no beginning, the Logos is eternal. The si- significance is that the Logos is the same God who speaks in the Old Testament, who entered into covenants with his people Israel and inspired and moved the prophets to speak. And so John continues uh, that the Logos, the Word, was with God and was God, and all creation was made through this Word. And finally, in verse 14, it's revealed that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the Word of God, the Logos, is Jesus, 
And so Jesus is synonymous, synonymous with the Word of God because, because Scripture reveals the incarnate and eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And it also reveals Jesus' words and his actions in the, in the New Testament, which reveal God. And so every city that, that Paul would enter into, the very first thing he would do is he would hate, head straight to the synagogue. Acts 19.8 says, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke uh, boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He would reason with the Jews of the city that Jesus was the promised Messiah foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Or look in Luke 24.25, uh, this is on the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus reveals uh, to two of his followers, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so the entire Old Testament, the word of God declares that the Messiah would be the seed of Eve who would bruise the serpent's head while the serpent bruised his heel. He would be the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. He would be the scepter of Israel, the prophet like Moses whom God raised up for his people, the commander of the army of the Lord, Job's living redeemer. He would be David's Messiah and Lord, the man of sorrows who's borne our grief, the branch of righteousness who rules as David's heir. He is the son of God and the son of man as seen in Daniel's uh, dream. He will ransom God's people from the power of the grave. He pours out his spirit on his followers and the one who brings salvation. He will rule from Zion and judge between many peoples. He is the desire of all nations, will bear the glory and sit and rule on his throne and the son of righteousness who rose with healing on his wings. With regard to discipleship, Paul, Paul says, uh, follow me. But it's also ultimately because he knows, because Paul knows Christ, and because Paul follows Christ, and Paul points people to Christ. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Every disciple is therefore a disciple of Christ. In regard to biblical counseling, the goal is to be conformed to Christ through the understanding of God's good news, the gospel, as revealed through God's word. Therefore, counseling should be centered on Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, God reveals the depths of sin the extent of suffering, the depth of His grace as well. Wise counseling gets, gets at the heart of these personal and interpersonal problems by implementing the truth and the mercy and the power of Christ's grace. There is no true restoration of the soul, and there are no truly God-honoring relationships without understanding the desperate condition we are in without Christ and apart from experiencing the joy of increasing deliverance from that condition through his mercies. We need to point people to the person of Jesus so that they would place their trust in the transforming power of the Redeemer as the only hope to changing people's hearts. 
We need to counsel struggling and hurting and sinning and confused people to the hope, the resources, the strength, the life that is available only in Christ. And so finally, though Paul suffered extensively for the gospel, he says in verse 11 of our passage, he says, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. But the Father did not rescue Christ from his persecution so that Christ was tortured and killed. He hung on a cross until he breathed his last breath for our benefit and for God's glory. The last idea in our passage today is found in 2 Timothy 3.15, where Paul, referring to God's word, he says, it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so precisely because it's, it's breathed out by God, the Bible is the only handbook for salvation. And it doesn't, it doesn't contradict what we see in reality or in nature because God created everything, but the Bible is not meant to be a science book. There are many facts of science that can be discovered from behind a telescope or a microscope, but no amount of deep space exploration will reveal the facts of salvation. No amount of, uh, of looking through a, a microscope, that our DNA, right? The gospel isn't written on our DNA. Although we can't discover it in creation, God has chosen to reveal the means of salvation through his word. The Bible tells of man's creation in God's image, his fall through disobedience into sin, coming under God's judgment, and yet God's continuing in love in spite of man's rebellion. It lays out God's plan for redemption for his chosen people, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as the Savior, as our high priest, as our king, sitting at the right hand of the Father and having sent the Holy Spirit, man was rescued from guilt and separation from God freed from the bondage of slavery to sin and adopted into God's family for eternity. And none of this would be known apart from God's revealed, breathed out word. How good is, though, is that revealed truth? How good are those things? Amen? Thank God for the good news that is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we're to have faith, we're to put our trust in Christ, and the Bible gives evidence of Jesus through the Old Testament prophecies, types and shadows that are fulfilled in Christ. The Gospels tells us of God come down, the incarnate Jesus' life, his teachings, his works, his death and resurrection. Acts tells of, of the body of Christ, his apostles indwelt with the Holy Spirit, spreading the gospel, growing the early church. The epistles demonstrate the glory of his person and work applied to the life of the church through Christian believers. Revelation portrays Christ sharing the throne of God soon to come again to complete his salvation and his judgment. This is the picture that God's word paints for us. It's good and true and beautiful. It's complete. It's only by trusting in the Christ revealed in Scripture that we can be saved. And I'd like to finish with a quote from, from Pastor John Piper. He says, we are people of the book. We know God through the book. We meet Christ in the book. We see the cross in the book. Our faith and love are kindled by the glorious truths of the book. We have tasted the divine majesty of the word and are persuaded that the book is God's inspired and infallible written revelation. 
Therefore, what the book teaches matters. Doctrine is important for worship and life and mission. So, relationship with Christ, a meaningful life, and kingdom ministry, they need to be saturated in the inspired Word of God. Good lives are evidence of salvation. Therefore, continue in the Scriptures. Never stop studying. Be men and women of God, complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's hope for the life of believers, to have meaning, to have kingdom investment, to counsel and be counseled, to disciple and be discipled. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, your word this is a dem- that is um, a demonstration of who you are, who we are, God, how we are to live, uh, our hope. God, let our, our, our time in your word continue to conform us, to transform us, to shape us into the image of your son. God, let us go to your word and not miss Jesus God, that we would know you and be known by you, that it would inform our prayer life, that it would inform um, our character, God, that it would be a light uh, to to a world that is growing more and more uncomfortable uh, with the truths that are in your word, that is pushing back, God. Let us stay strong, that we would hold to the truths of your word. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.